0: Welcome to the City Beautiful Church podcast. Thank you for taking the time to join our family as we strive to live together in heavenly reality. For more great content, visit us online at citybeautiful.ch.
1: Everybody, welcome to our online worship gathering. So this is a little bit different, a little bit new for us, but I really hope this is going to be a way for us to continue to stay in a posture of worship, to gather together, um, to sing praises to the Lord, and really to continue this journey that we've been on this year of uh, maturing for, in Christ for the sake of the world. Um, so this is the online platform you'll find over uh, this side, the right side. Um, there's options for seeking scripture, for notes, uh, to be able to chat with other people, and even to. Send in some prayer requests. Up in the top right, you'll find there's a button specifically for finding things for our kids to do, Um, an opportunity to click there to give, uh, and to find out the other things that are going on around our community. So I'm going to pray, and we're going to spend some time in worship uh, wherever we're at this morning. Um, Heavenly Father, uh, we testify to the truth that you are here, that you are with us, and that you are for us, you are not against us. And Lord, even though we can't be physically present to one another today, uh, may we be present to one another in spirit. That as we worship you, as we delve into your word, as we pray together, that we join with the cloud of witnesses, um, brothers and sisters in the faith around the world and throughout time um, who have gone through many dark seasons in the history of our world and have still claimed that you are Lord, that you are above all and over all and through all and in all. So God, may everything that we do today be for your glory. And may this become one of the finest moments of the modern church. We pray these things in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Hãy is really weird um, and unexpected, and if you had asked me at the beginning of the year if uh, I was going to be preaching in a room with one person in it, I would think that I totally said something that was chased everybody out of the church, but I guess that's not the case, and this is what church is going to be looking like for the next few weeks. you know, I, I've been engaging with a lot of you over the past couple of weeks and staff. We've been talking with our leadership, with our elders. And um, just as I've been praying about this, like this, yes, this is a dire circumstance and this is really difficult, but I also f- really genuinely feel um, deep down in my bones that this is a moment for the church. And I don't say that lightly. I know um, it's very easy to just try to make an optimistic spin on things, but I really feel like the Lord wants to do something in this. And I think for us as City Beautiful Church specifically, you know, we have this vision for the year of maturing into Christ for the sake of the world and kind of dissecting those three parts. What is maturity? Um, what does it mean when we when we look for maturity in Christ, not just as an influence for who we are to become, but that actually it's the spirit Spirit of Christ in us that transforms us to look more like Him, but finally that that, that last piece for the sake of the world, um, and and we're getting to that piece I think a lot earlier maybe than I had anticipated, but. Um if there's anything that I've learned, um, it's that the kingdom only has one direction, um, and it only continues to advance. And so we're going to continue on, um, and just see what the Lord has for us. We're all really trying to be, uh, especially sensitive to what he might be saying moving forward. Um, so speaking of that, um, a couple weeks ago, I had this whole plan, you know, we've been working through the gospel of Luke, kind of asking if, if Jesus is the truly human one, if he's the one that we look to to say, this is who we are becoming in Christ, um, you know, what are the lessons that we can learn and what are the ways that either Jesus is behaving and acting and thinking or what are the ways that he's challenging his followers? And I was going to do this whole uh, passage kind of carrying on uh, later on in Luke about money and power and Pharisees and all of this. And by the time we got to Sunday, when things really started to change, um, I felt like maybe it wasn't the right time for that message. And and maybe I'll get back to it some other time. I'm not sure. so I didn't really know what I was going to do today and I was uh, doing the dishes on Monday and I felt like the Lord said, you need to go and read the, uh, the story of Jesus feeding the 5,000, which um, of course is back earlier in the Gospel of Luke than where we've been, but I went and I read it and I just immediately knew um, this is the word that the Lord has for us this week and it's, a, it's more of a uh, pastoral word. So I'm going to read Luke chapter 9 verses 1 to 17, so hopefully you'll be able to read it on the screen or you can click the tab on the right and look it up uh, directly within this platform. This is Luke chapter nine, verses one to 17. When Jesus had called the 12 together, he gave them power and authority to drive out all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. He told them, take nothing for the journey. No staff, no bag, no bread, no money, no extra shirt. Whatever house you enter, stay there until you leave that town. If people do not welcome you, leave their town and shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. So they set out and went from village to village, proclaiming the good news and healing people everywhere. Now Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was going on, and he was perplexed because some were saying that John had been raised from the dead, others that Elijah had appeared, and still others that one of the prophets of long ago had come back to life. But Herod said, I beheaded John. Who then is this I hear such things about? And he tried to see him. When the apostles returned, they reported to Jesus what they had done. When he took them and they went through it by themselves to a town called Bethsaida, but the crowds learned about it and followed him. He welcomed them and spoke to them about the kingdom of God and healed those who needed healing. Later in the afternoon, the twelve came to him and said, Send the crowd away so they can go to the surrounding villages and countryside and find food and lodging, because we're in a remote place here. He replied, You give them something to eat. They answered, We only have five loaves of bread and two fish unless we go and buy food for all this crowd. About 5,000 men were with them. And I think that that's interesting. You think about these men are probably bringing their wives and children, so this is actually far more than 5,000. But he said to his disciples, have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. The disciples did so, and everyone sat down. Taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke them. Then he gave them to the disciples to distribute to the people. They all ate and were satisfied. And, over the, and the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. So, Heavenly Father, um, we open ourselves to you this morning to speak whatever you see fit, not just for our personal stories, whatever we're working through and we're bringing to the table today, um, but the things that we're kind of working through as a community and indeed um, as the human family. God, I pray that this morning our hearts would be open to hear your truth above all other things that are flying at us, that at your feet we would be able to to lay down our fear and anxiety of the future, our guilt or regret of the past, to be fully present here now in this moment, to sit at the feet of Jesus, to inquire of him, to lean in to him so that we might hear his heartbeat for us. So may the words of my lips and the meditation of all of our hearts be ever pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So we're essentially looking at two different stories here that are very interrelated. The first time that Jesus sends the disciples out on mission, up until this point, they've been watching and observing and asking questions and just kind of figuring out who this Jesus person is that they've signed up to follow. And then in the second story, uh, Jesus uh, preaches to the good news uh, to this very large group of people in the wilderness. Um, and then the disciples bring them this problem of eating, and then he performs the miracle of feeding the 5,000. So. What I want to do is talk a little bit about the backstory, and then I want to draw out one particular um, idea from each of these stories that I think is really pertinent to us today. Um, so I spent part of the time, because we're in social distancing mode, uh, this week researching uh, tax rates in Galilee in the first century. I know many of you probably did the same this week. And so as I'm looking online, and I'm, I'm really getting a, getting a flavor for where are the most people at in the first century um, that are following Jesus, I was actually quite surprised surprised to find that it was probably something around a 90% rate of working poor and below. So these are people that are, it's an agrarian society. Most of them, um, if they're farming, they're only farming to survive. They're not making any real sense of profit. And then below that, uh, that level of, of people, there were many, uh, uh, you know, extremely poor people, um, the homeless, the widows, the orphans, foreigners among them that we oftentimes read in Scripture. And we know from the Hebrew Scriptures that God has a special affection for these kinds of people. Um, and a large part of the reason that poverty was so widespread in the first century, not just in Galilee or Judea, but in the entire Roman Empire, was because they were existing under a threefold tax system. The Roman Empire uh, was taxing all of its citizens uh, for many particular things in terms of trade, in terms Terms of access and ent- entry and exit of cities. Um there was also a tax system established by the Jewish ruling elite. Here we, we hear the, this name, Herod the Tetrarch, who is uh, one of the four sons of Herod the Great, who was king uh, at the time of Jesus' birth. Uh, and then the third, of course, was that they, uh, everyone was paying their taxes to the synagogue, to the religious system. Um, not only were these their tithes and offerings, but there was also extra being taken up. And then in between all of those tax systems, you have the infamous tax collectors and others who are seeking to uh, take advantage of the people as much as possible. Um, So it's a very difficult time for us, uh, for them to live, and it's a very difficult time uh, for people just to find some semblance of normalcy in life, uh, let alone being able to thrive. I think this is really fascinating as a backdrop to these two stories, because what we find in the first is that Jesus sends the disciples out to preach the good news, And it kind of bounces back and forth between these two phrases in Luke, preaching the good news and preaching about the kingdom of God. And when we really understand what's happening in the first century in Galilee and Judea, we begin to ask the question, what was the good news to those first hearers? Especially what was so good about it that people were risking leaving behind jobs and and the comfort of their own homes to enter out into the wilderness to, to find this bizarre rabbi who's speaking about the kingdom of God advancing in their time. You know, I'd be willing to bet that the good news for those first hearers of the gospel was not simply believe in Jesus and pray this prayer, and then you'll get to go to heaven when you die. Because that wouldn't really do them a lot of good right now in the meantime. Um, That just, the the good news being reduced to only being about the afterlife and, and an assurance of where they'll end up once they die doesn't really feel like there's anything tangible to it. And I think what the good news was that Jesus preached, speaking about the kingdom of God and that his disciples were first taking out to these original hearers is that there is another way. There is an alternative in every aspect of life. This isn't merely economic. It is not merely political. This envelops every aspect of what it means to be a human being. Jesus came to show a new way of being a human being, but also to gather together a group of people that acknowledge under his lordship, this is the alternative to what we find in the empires of the world. And it's fascinating that both of these stories with the disciples being sent out for the first time and then the feeding of the 5,000, both of these stories start with nothing. They start with lack. The disciples are sent out and purposely told, don't take anything with you that would normally be a comfort to you. We find these people following Jesus out into the wilderness and they don't have anything and the disciples' first response is, well, we need to send them to the surrounding villages to find something or everybody's going to starve. And I think there must have been a level of incredulity within the disciples of wondering, what is God asking of us by sending us out like this? And what's he asking us to do when we have such a burden um, to not only to preach the good news, but to demonstrate it to these people that are so hungry for it? And so that, with that question in mind, I want to look at these two stories. So first, the disciples being sent out. I think what we really learn in this story is that following Jesus challenges our assumptions about what it means to have enough when we are sent out into the world. I think we're in a season, I think we have been for several years, but I think especially now in these past few weeks, um, we are in a moment in history where it feels like it's raining fear and anxiety from the sky. Everything we read, everywhere we turn, we're seeing um, what for, for some people actually feels like the end times. But one thing that we know from human experience is that when we live out of fear, it triggers something within our ego, and it leads us into this kind of manic self-preservation mentality. It triggers, for many of us in the West, this consumerist mindset that says, I'm not okay the way that I am right now, so I have to do what I can, gather up what I can in order to protect myself, and that becomes the primary motivator of everything that I think and I act and I feel. We've seen it over these past few weeks with people hoarding supplies, uh, toilet paper, pasta, everything you can imagine. You go into some of the stores and it's absolutely empty of all of these essentials. I was also reading um, earlier this week about how gun sales and ammunition sales in our country have tremendously spiked some places um, fronting numbers as much as 400% increase over what they would normally be making in this season. This is what happens when our fear takes hold of our ego when we enter into that compulsive self-preservational mindset. And brothers and sisters, I want to say to you very clearly that that kind of living of, of hoarding, of going beyond just protection and wisdom to hoard, to guide, and, and heaven forbid to arm ourselves because we are afraid, that is not the good news. That is not the kingdom of God. And I know that that's really difficult sometimes for us to accept. But if there's anything that I've learned about the kingdom of God, it's not because it's based on what is practical and what is reasonable, it is based upon what is true. And it's based upon what is true because of what we see in Jesus Christ as our king. Because if we're honest, a lot of times we feel inadequate. We feel like we're too small for the job that God has called us to. We feel too uh, little for the times in which we have been placed to be that shining light, to be that example. You know, often I feel that way, even in these past few weeks, I would be lying if I said that I hadn't been overcome with fear and anxiety at certain times, wondering what does this mean for me? What does it mean for my family? What does it mean for my community that I love so much? And so often the moments when God calls us to action, to be his church, to be his people, to live in his way our response is often, well, let me gather just a little bit more. Let me make one more run to the grocery store. Let me read one more book. Or, I just, I'm not prepared right now, Jesus, for what you're asking of me, but let me go and get a little bit more and then I will be ready. The truth is, if we live out of that mentality, we shall never be ready because we think there's always just a little bit more for us to gobble up and then we will be who God needs us to be. But what Jesus was asking these disciples for when he first sent them out is what he's asking of us today, to live by faith, to open ourselves up, to empty ourselves of our, uh, of believing that we are capable in and of ourselves, and to learn how to rely on God's provision, to make ourselves needy and reliant, and to still choose to step out into the world to be faithful who God is calling us to be, come what may. And I'm not talking about blind optimism. So often when people talk about faith, they talk about it in, in contrary to the evidence of what's happening around us. That essentially pretending like we're not afraid is the antidote to fear and is basically the same thing. And that's not what I'm saying. I'm not asking you to be optimistic. I'm not asking you to tune out the reality of the world in which we live right now. But I am asking you and I'm asking myself to appeal to a higher decision-making capability that we have as the children of God. Too often we lower our sights from truly radical faith of following God through the difficult times and we begin to accept more reasonable expectations of how we're supposed to act and what we can say and what we can do. And before long, we take it upon ourselves to just provide for ourselves and our immediate tribe. We take it upon ourselves to protect ourselves because we don't really believe that God is as good as he's revealed in Jesus. You know, I think that brings us to the second story when we pivot from looking at how so often we are positioned when it comes to mission to feel inadequate to gazing at Jesus and saying, what is he doing? How is he in the world in a way that I can draw some inspiration to understand what maturity looks like? You know, several years ago, I was sitting uh, with several other church leaders at varying degrees of ministry, and we were talking about how important it is to have healthy boundaries and how to learn how to say no. And, and we were, you know, there's very good conversation to be had in that, of, of really recognizing that we have limitations as human beings and as leaders. But as I was sitting there and I was listening to all of these great tips and tricks, I just, something didn't sit right with me. And I actually thought of this story of Jesus feeding the 5,000. Because I think for every, you know, helpful principle that we can find in the story of Jesus, of what it means uh, to be Christ-like, of what it means to be the church— It's almost like there's one counter-narrative, there's one story or one little vignette from Jesus' life that kind of keeps us on our toes and, 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 and keeps us from relying on our own knowledge and how principled we are and how we're following the guidelines to open us back up continually to that place of faith. And that's what we find when we look at the story of, of Jesus feeding the 5,000. Now, I want to read a couple of verses from the same story, but in the Gospel of Matthew, because I think it gives us a little bit more of the emotional context that we need to understand in order for the actions of Jesus here to really haunt us and to challenge some of our fear-based operating. This is Matthew chapter 14, verses 13 and 14. So when Jesus had heard what had happened... Speaking of John the Baptist being beheaded, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. Hearing of this, the crowds followed him on foot from the towns. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them and healed their sick. So, John the Baptist is Jesus' cousin. They're about six months apart, which, which stands to reason they probably grew up together quite literally from a very early age, from birth. They would have known each other intimately. And you can, you can also see how much that bond must have been strengthened when John positions himself as the one who goes ahead of the Messiah, creating um, a palette um, of, of stoking up curiosity in, in the Jews of the day to recognize that perhaps God's Messiah is finally coming. And we see this kind of interaction between the two of them from the moment of Jesus' baptism in the River Jordan to when John is in prison and he's trying to find out through his disciples what's really going on. And we can feel the weight of John's story in that. And finally, John is beheaded by this very same Herod um, because he felt threatened by the message that John is preaching about another king that was coming along with a different kingdom. And so we can imagine then to hear the, the, the news that John the Baptist is dead, that Jesus is trying to get off alone so that he can mourn the loss of his cousin. Imagine if you're going about your day and all of a sudden that you hear that your cousin, your brother, your sister has, has died. What would be your natural reaction? You too would be going off trying to find a place that you can get alone, that you can wrestle through those feelings, that you can cry out to God, perhaps, in frustration at the injustice of it all. And so we can see through the Gospel of Matthew, this is what Jesus is trying to do. He's trying to go off to a solitary place, but that doesn't happen because of the good news that Jesus brings. And thousands of people follow him out into the wilderness. But I love here again in Matthew, we have, it says that Jesus saw the large crowd and he had compassion on them. And that, that word for compassion in Greek is, is that he felt it in his guts. you ever have that, that experience where you encounter pain or brokenness or sadness in somebody else and you just feel it at the core of who you are and you almost can't help but get involved, but get into the mix to find some way of providing hope. See, Jesus lived out of that his whole life. He felt on this deep, visceral level the pain of humanity. And this would have been the moment that for many of us, and it would have been totally reasonable for Jesus to say, I'm sorry, not today. I I just can't right now. Just give me some time. And Jesus absolutely would have had the right to do that. But he doesn't. It says, Jesus turned around, he saw them, he had compassion. And he began to heal the sick. And he began to minister to them, speaking of the kingdom of God. Now, I think there's a lot of nuance to be parsed out here. I'm not just simply saying, oh, you shouldn't have any boundaries and you should never say no. That is, please give me grace. That is not what I'm saying. Jesus lived a virtuous life. And that virtuous life was formed out of these habits that he had developed in his life of prayer, of intimacy with God, Sabbath, and worship. These things were forming Jesus so that the moments when he was stretched, when he was put in a place where his margins were being overrun, he knew what to do. And I think that's important for us to recognize That we need to be formed in such a way that when trial comes along, when the pain comes for other people, we are being stretched, we are still able to show up and to be faithful witnesses to the good news of Jesus. Because when you and I, when we live out of this cult of spontaneity, which means in any day we could do this or we could do that. We're just kind of feeling our way through life and some of us kind of label that as being led by the Holy Spirit. When we live out of that cult of spontaneity, we cannot show up in our lives when it matters the most because we have not been formed. You know, vice comes naturally to us. It doesn't require any habit, but virtue begs of us, who are we to become? And what kind of action of the Holy Spirit in our lives do we need to enable to form the habits now to recognize in the moments of pain and travesty in our world that we can show up as Jesus did. And I think this is what's so powerful in this story when we look at the person of Jesus, that when the going gets tough, mature Christians don't make decisions based on their personal rights, but on self-giving love for neighbor. What do I mean by personal rights? We have rights that are owed to us by our country, and I'm intensely thankful for those rights. As a newly minted citizen of the United States, I'm thankful that I have rights. But as a citizen of heaven, which has a higher citizenship than what I've been granted on earth, I recognize that I have sacrificed those rights for a higher calling, which is to be like Jesus. When we make decisions based on our rights, we're making decisions on what we think that we're owed or what we deserve in order to maintain a certain lifestyle. When we make decisions based out of what our rights are, we become self-centered. We become inwardly focused. But for those of us who claim to be Christian, we recognize that we are a cruciform people, which is to say that we are shaped like Jesus. And this is why it's so important that we immerse ourselves in the reality of who Jesus is. When we believe the gospel is just about us, you know, fulfilling our dreams, we bring our dreams into this place and then God speaks into them and then we go out and we fulfill them and become these amazing people, we absolutely miss it because when we enter into scripture, when we come to Jesus, we're only looking for validation for the things that we already say that we believe. And we find that very little of it has anything to do with our lives in the way that we want to shape them. But when we come to Jesus open handed, curious, allowing him to reveal himself to us as we truly are, we find that we're called to live in a radically different way. And there were so many scriptures throughout the New Testament that I could draw in that demonstrate this, and I didn't want to hit you over the head just kind of trying to prove this point, but is there anything more beautiful in this phrase in 1 John chapter 3? This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. I lament that we in the American church have missed the core of our own faith. And I know that that I have contributed to that as much as anyone else. That when we believe that it's about just being a better person or finding happiness... Before long, we begin to realize that the gospel as it is preached by Jesus that's revealed in the Holy Scriptures has very little to say to actually help us to achieve our own goals. And then the going gets tough, and then we suffer, and we don't have a theology of suffering. We don't have understanding and all of a sudden we begin to question, does God really exist? Does, does God really love me? Because I'm going through these hard times and, and surely if God loved us, we wouldn't be experiencing this kind of pain. And very quickly we begin to realize that we've, we've written a version of God in our heads that is not real. Because it's not the God that's revealed in Jesus. The God who forsook heaven taking the form of a man, becoming less than a man and dying for us so that we might be raised to life. But then recognizing that we too are called into that same lifestyle, that we make ourselves nothing, that we become humble like him to the point of death. We used to have a word for people that were killed for their faith. They were called martyrs. And now so often they're just fools who didn't do the right thing to protect themselves and their loved ones. This is a time for us to come back to Jesus as he truly is. Because when we recognize who Jesus truly is, we're going to start reassessing what it means to be the church. That the church is meant to be an alternative society. One in which Jesus is already king. We're not called to be relevant to culture. We're not called to find our place in society as if we're just one more little niche. We are called to be an alternative to society, a group of people who recognize in Jesus, this is what God really looks like. And when we begin to live the kind of lives that he is calling us to, we are truly free, that we recognize Jesus is our king. He is the one that we submit to, who we follow, who we get every bit of us behind him and to see where he's taking us. Friends, it's in times like these where we do not ask the question, is Jesus still Lord? When it seems like everything's going crazy, when it seems like there's so much fear and anxiety and this is not how we thought our lives were going to go, this is not the time for us to ask the question, is Jesus still Lord? It is time for us to ask the question, what does it mean for him to be Lord in this moment? What does it mean for him to be the king over my life and over the lives of all of his followers right now? Because when we begin to ask that question of God, we're going to develop new strategies of what it means to be his church. And we find that for the sake of the world, we are called to stand boldly in the gap between heaven and earth, to see the kingdom of heaven advance in our own time. There's a quote from one of the saints, the recent saints, that just haunts me when it comes to this idea of standing in the gap between heaven and earth. This is from Mother Teresa. She said, if I ever become a saint, I will surely be one of darkness. I will continually be absent from heaven to light the light of those in darkness on earth. I think Teresa understood what it means to be shaped like Jesus. To become the ambassador of heaven for the sake of the world. To be a light in dark places. To know that our reward is not simply us getting to be with God for eternity, which is still a very self-centered, if that's all the gospel entails, that we're just going to do what we need to do and twiddle our thumbs until we die and then we get to go off to heaven, but to actually participate in his work of redeeming the world. And I just, I just wonder if, you know, in a, in, a, in, a, in a season like this within our city, within our nation, within our world... What would it be like? What would, what would we have to be? What would we have to do for the world to look at us and to say, those Christians, I can't believe how generous they are. I can't believe how disarming they are, how patient, how other-focused. Surely there must be another way to be a human being. There must be another way to be a society, to be a group of people that have been formed in freedom. And that's my challenge for us moving forward. It's why it's imperative that we continue to meet, that we continue to pray and worship and pour over the scriptures and continually challenge one another to sit at the feet of Jesus and to learn from him. Because this is when it matters the most. Not three weeks ago, right now. This is when it matters the most. Do we believe what we say that we believe about the God revealed in Jesus? And do we believe what we say we believe about being the church? This is my final encouragement to you in this. And this is especially for my family at City Beautiful Church. I know we have people that are tuning in from around the country and potentially from around the world. But to my dear ones here at City Beautiful Church, you know him, you do. I've seen it, I've seen evidence of it. And you are known by Him. You have been prepared for this. You feel inadequate. You feel like you don't have enough to show up when it matters the most. But I'm here to reassure you that you do. Because everything you need is found in intimacy with God. Take the time to sit with Him. Let Him speak to you. Let Him guide you in His ways so that you can learn how to be his hands and feet, be praying unceasingly. As we've been talking about recently, praying the Lord's Prayer over and over and over again as the truly revolutionary act that that prayer is and to accept the consequences of what it means to that prayer for our own well-being and where it is that we think that we stand in the society around us. Don't give up connecting with one another train yourself to see the kingdom advance. What can you do right now? What can you be right now? So before we spend some time in prayer, I wanted to talk about some of the things that we as City Beautiful Church are doing specifically in these times of trial. And that's through our Benevolence Fund. I'm really excited to tell you that this week, as a church community, we've donated $1,000 to the Second Harvest Food Bank. Uh, Food banks are going to potentially be overwhelmed in the coming weeks as people lose their jobs, as kids that would normally be getting fed at school are in possible situations where they're going without. And so we've been able to donate $1,000 as a church to our local food bank um, in order to be a part of supporting the professionals that are on the front lines of doing the all-important work of keeping people alive. Not only that, I'm making a call today for us to increase our benevolence fund. You know, as a church, we've committed to giving away 10% of everything that we take in, and we have an amazing team who receive requests from individuals who pray over um, those people and their situations, and that are able to pay bills or, um, you know, whatever it is, whatever their financial struggles are, um, that we're able to meet those. But I think in this next season, that 10% is not going to be enough. And so, what I want to challenge you to today and in the coming weeks is I want you to go to citybeautiful.ch give. I want you to give of your regular tithes and offerings as you normally would there to the general fund. And you can also do that by texting in on the phone number uh, that you're familiar with. But I'm going to challenge you to give a second offering today. And when you go to citybeautiful.ch give, in the drop-down menu, there's going to be an option to sew directly into our Benevolence Fund. And our team is going to be discerning all of the different needs that we find in our community and beyond in terms of helping out individuals and being able to sew into organizations that are on the front line. And it almost... terrifies me to do this, but as as an example to all of you, I'm personally committing a thousand dollars into that benevolence fund today. I want to challenge you to really spend some time with the Lord, to really seek out how would he have you use what you have now, your resources and your time for us to show up for one another and for the world. And so I'm going to pray, and there's a There's a give button up here in the top right that'll take you directly to our page. And so, Father, as we give uh, of our tithes and our offerings, I pray that that would be a blessing to you and acknowledgement that every good thing we have comes from you. And Lord, as we spend time with you seeking, what more can we do? How can we truly demonstrate that radical generosity which you are so known for? I pray that you would lead each of us, give us each a number a target, whatever it might be, that we could go above and beyond today and in the coming weeks to truly be the feet, the hands of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Bless us as we bless you, Lord. Amen. The final thing that I wanted to do with you today is to spend some time in intercessory prayer. And so I'm going to be using... Um, a very basic prayer journey that is found in the book of Common Prayer that leads us into praying in different arenas of life that maybe we wouldn't normally be familiar with. And I found it so useful in my own prayer life because I find myself confronting things that I wouldn't normally believe that God actually has an opinion on, Um, but to seek His face in all of these different arenas. So we're going to pray for the church, we're going to pray for the world, we're going to pray for our government, we're going to pray for our loved ones, we're going to pray for the sick and the dying. So I'm going to pray and then I'm going to leave a little bit of space for you to intercede whatever the Lord puts on your heart in this moment and to believe that as you're praying, uh, your brothers and sisters, not just within our church but around the world, are praying these same prayers with us in solidarity. So let us pray for the church and for the world. Grant, almighty God, that all who confess your name may be united in your truth, live together in your love, and reveal your glory in the world. God, we especially pray for local churches um, that we are friends with. God, I pray today for the tribe. I pray for the cross. I pray for Emmanuel. I pray for St. Luke's. I pray for one church, Park District, that these churches as well would heed the call to be your hands and feet, that they would leap to action and to say, Lord, what would you have us do in this moment? And that we would see such a radical response from the church in Orlando to meet the needs of the sick around us, of those who are in pain, that we would genu- genuinely see a new awareness of your presence and your heart for our city. So let's just pray for the church wherever you're at. guide the people of this land and of all the nations in the ways of justice and peace that we may honor one another and serve the common good. Lord, in this uh, time of uh, chaos, I pray your blessing upon our President Donald, upon our Vice President Mike, upon the court system, Congress, especially Representative Stephanie Murphy Marco, and Senators Marco Rubio and Rick Scott, We ask your blessing upon our city mayor, Buddy, and our county mayor, Jerry, that all of them would in some way turn to you to seek out what true wisdom and compassion look like, that we can see a response from our government that contains within it the elements of heaven and true justice in your eyes. Let's pray for our government and for governments all around the world. Give us all the reverence for the earth as your own creation, that we may use its resources rightly in the service of others and to your honor and glory. God, we know that when there is um, economic trouble in our country and around the world, that so often there are organizations, nonprofits that suffer who are on the front lines of caring for creation. God, I pray that your guidance, your protection would be with them and that you would continue to stir up among your own people among the, within the church um, a strong desire to return back to our first vocation as stewards of the earth. Bless all whose lives are closely linked with ours. Grant that we may serve Christ in them and love one another as he loves us. Especially if pay, pray for my parents in Brittany, France as they're in uh, quarantine. I pray for my brother Scott in DC. I pray for my brother Joel in Virginia that they would all be safe, that they would be secure, but that this would be such a sweet time of knowing you on a more intimate level. Let's pray for our own loved ones. Comfort and heal all those who suffer in body, mind, or spirit. Give them courage and hope in their troubles and bring them the joy of your salvation. God, we pray for all who are infected today with COVID-19, whether they know you or not, that this would be a space for you to, to do the miraculous, to heal the sick, to demonstrate your love for the world. God, we ask that you would be with those who are sick and dying in this moment. We commend to your mercy all who have died, that your will for them may be fulfilled. And we pray that we may share with all your saints. In your eternal kingdom. Heavenly Father, whose blessed Son came not to be served, but to serve, bless all who, following in his steps, give themselves to the service of others that with wisdom, patience, and courage, they may minister in his name to the suffering, the friendless, and the needy. For the love of him who laid down his life for us, your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Well, that's all we have for today, friends. Um, I hope this has been encouraging and challenging to you. We will see you next week at 10.30 a.m. God bless.
0: This has been the City Beautiful Church podcast. To stay connected, follow us on social everywhere at Ch. We hope you join us again soon.